2: Hello and welcome to The Paratest, Test, the political podcast that asks what Labour should do to win and change Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika.
3: And I'm Sam Friedman. And today we're discussing how Labour navigates the tricky politics of net zero.
2: Shortly, we'll be joined by The Telegraph's environmental editor, Emma Gatton, and the economist and former Treasury advisor to Rishi Sunak, Tim Leunig, and a former environmental aide to US President Bill Clinton,
3: Paul Bledsoe. So, Aisha, we've just come out of conference season and that, uh, amongst other things, started to give us a sense of what the kind of big election issues are going to be and what the real dividing lines that both parties accept uh, are big differences between the parties. And one of them does seem to be becoming environment. We saw before the conferences, uh, Senac did a big speech rolling back on a number of pledges on net zero. We had sort of the big row about ULEZ and the Uxbridge by-election over the summer. Keir Starmer then in his speech sort of said, OK, well, if you want to make it a dividing line, we're happy with that. We want to be the, the party of the environment. We're going to make tackling climate change a huge part of our economic agenda. So it's it, it sort of starting to feel like this is something both parties kind of want to have a row about.
2: I do think it's interesting as well, though, that Rishi Sunak chose pre-conference to dive in with this big speech at Downing Street about net zero, And then, of course, you know, cancelling HS2 at conference he has decided for whatever reason, he and his strategist, and I'd love to know what polling they've seen or or why they've come to this decision, They've decided to really lean in to this sort of culture war, particularly around the motorists. You know, he hailed that, you know, there is a war on the motorists and I'm going to be the person to end it, which sort of feeds into to speed limits and things. And it is very interesting that they have decided at this moment
3: to do this. Mm. And, uh, and I think there's kind of two things going on at the same time that have sort of got a bit conflated. One, one is that Sunak... Generally thinks the net zero agenda has been pushed too far by his predecessor, by Boris Johnson. He didn't agree with, I think, what he saw as some of the gesture politics of of Boris Johnson. And yeah, you know, let's be honest, it was more Carrie Johnson than Boris Johnson. And, and All right, then, Simon Keith. Yes, yeah, it's, it's true. Um, and uh, and has decided he sort of wants to push back on that and uh, and wants to make a bit of a thing about how he's being more sort of long term about it. Um, but then at the same time, you've got sort of the strategists around him who've looked at Uxbridge. And are thinking this is a dividing line. We haven't got very many uh, issues where we can be more popular than Labour. Maybe this is one of them. I do think they have massively overinterpreted what happened in Oxbridge and got oh, very overexcited about winning a seat that Labour had never won ever by 500 votes. And it was a particular moment when the Euler's charge was about to come in, and uh, lots of people worrying about paying it. Uh, who probably didn't have to pay it and I think even if you had the election tomorrow Labour would now win it so I think they've massively interpreted, overinterpreted that and, and actually have misread public opinion a bit on this issue but but I think that's what's going on
2: I think there's a general sense though from some Labour people that yes, they do think it's good that Labour is well ahead than the Conservatives on green issues but at the back of them their mind there is this niggle about how a lot of ordinary people feel about the question, who's going to pay for it? Are they going to be paying for it? Th- there is there is a slight anxiety there.
3: Yes. And, uh, you know, you can you, you sort of see a number of the things that the Tories are trying to push around, you know, the cost of heat pumps changing from your, your current boiler, changing to an electric car. But then the polling on on climate change is pretty clear that it is a worry for the majority of people. They do want to see the government taking action on it. And I think, there's been a bit of, as I said, there's been a bit of an overreading from from one incident in Uxbridge, and ULES wasn't about climate change, it was about air pollution, mm. but then taking that forward and saying uh, the same kind of logic applies to net zero. And it's true that if you poll people, uh, you know, they'll say, I'm really worried about climate change. But then you, know, you you poll them and say, okay, but you, are you personally willing to pay more to reduce climate change? You get a much lower result. But that's true for every policy area. You now, you say, are you worried about crime? Everyone says yes. You say, okay, are you personally willing to pay more tax to hire more police officers? People will, you'll get a very similar result on to climate change. And no one says, oh, well, that means people are desperate to see fewer police officers. It's just people don't like paying taxes.
2: And it's interesting that the central message from Labour on this is that this is all going to save you money, this is mm. going to bring your bills
3: down. £1,400 a month, apparently. Very or, or specific. A year, £1,400 a year, uh, which is a very specific number that I have no idea how they've calculated. But I'm sure lots of very careful, detailed work went into it.
2: Sam, before we speak to our guests, why don't we just explain to our listeners exactly what we mean when we say net zero?
3: Yeah, and it's quite important because actually when you poll people, they want net zero to happen but they have no idea what it means. <laughs> so we should sort of uh, probably say what it does mean. Uh, so the the sort of definition is a 100% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 compared with 1990 levels. In the Paris Agreement, which was signed a few years ago, we pledged to cut emissions by 68% by 2030. So basically it's you <laughs> reducing our carbon dioxide emissions by a very large amount in not very long uh, and to do that requires that we stop burning a lot of fossil fuels and um, both in the terms of how we generate electricity for our homes uh, and also in the cars that we drive and so on. So we need to move to, towards most people using electrical, well, everyone using an electric vehicle and we need to move to a sort of fully electrified grid and, and an end to the use of fossil fuels and, and much higher use of renewables. So uh, and doing that is is expensive because at the moment, at least, it is, for a lot of the time when the wind is not blowing very strong, cheaper to burn gas than get uh, energy any other way. In fact, we don't have any other way of getting energy. So there's a lot of work to do to get us there. There are lots of estimates flying around. One estimate is that, you know, we need to be spending something like 50 billion a year to get, to get there, which is we're not spending anywhere near that kind of amount at the moment. So... This ambition has been set. It's been set for a while. There are some plans in place to get to get there, some of which Rishi Sunak watered down a little bit. But we don't really have a fully worked out plan to get us to net zero by twenty fifty, and we haven't really uh, explored how much that's going to cost as a country.
2: And of course, there's a great opportunity to to get this right as well, because these are going to create big jobs. Of the future as well and I think both the government and the opposition party is really sort of trying to sell this on a green jobs message as well as you know this is going to cost, they're like well this is going to create really good jobs as well.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and one of the challenges about around this is that every every developed country is seeing this opportunity, and many of them are going for it. You know, we're going to talk to Paul Bledsoe, who who's been an advisor to the American government. They've put a huge amount of money into subsidising their green energy industry. Europe has put less money in, but has also created a sort of programme to do, to do similar. China is pumping out electric cars far cheaper than anybody else. We are in danger of being sort of left behind, and I think a lot of criticism of Rishi ex announcement actually came from businesses who want that certainty to invest in Britain so it may, may not make that much difference as to our eventual chances of hitting net zero but it might make a difference to whether companies come here or go to America or Germany or somewhere else and that's kind of where the fight is at the moment no one really knows quite how we're going to get to net zero but we do know we need this sort of massive expansion of the green energy industry and where's that going to happen and how are we going to get a piece of that pie.
2: We start by asking what lessons the UK can learn from the US, where last year President Biden introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, which commits nearly $800 billion towards tackling climate change and energy transition. Paul Bledsoe is the strategic advisor for the US Progressive Policy Institute and was formerly the director of communications for the White House Climate Change Task Force under Bill Clinton. And I'm delighted that Paul joins us now down the line from America. Hello, Paul.
0: Good morning.
2: Paul, just to go back to to your time when you were setting up this work with Bill Clinton, How receptive was Bill Clinton to environmental issues at that time?
0: President Clinton recognized, along with Vice President Gore, that climate change was going to be one of the defining issues of our time. And therefore, they set up the White House Climate Change Task Force the first time there was a group solely devoted to climate change within the White House. And the president began a whole series of measures, including involving the National Security Council and negotiations at the Kyoto UN climate talks, where we did get uh, an agreement and really kick-started U.S. climate action. And no president before him had done so.
3: Taking it forward to where we are today, we've had in the States the Inflation Reduction Act, and President Biden has taken perhaps more interest than certainly his immediate predecessor in the issue. How much difference is that making? Do you think it's been sort of successful in its aims so far?
0: Oh, a massive difference night and day. And already we have seen $250 billion in private sector investments incentivized by tax breaks, from the private sector in just one year. $250 billion in clean energy investments from the US private sector. This is a truly transformative program. It incentivizes more than 40 clean energy technologies across transportation, home, business, the entire country. And the goal is to make the United States the clean energy leader in the world so it's an incredibly ambitious enterprise the one thing i will say is there are concerns as there are in the uk that in the immediate term the average consumers can be left behind and uh, it complicates the politics of getting to the clean energy transition and to to net zero goals
2: and on that theme paul you have written about urging caution here in the United Kingdom, when it comes to uh, particularly taxing working people. We, of course, have just had the introduction and the expansion of the ULES scheme in London. Just tell us a bit more about that.
0: That's right. So in the United States, emphasizing economic growth and job creation through clean energy incentives is far more politically popular than imposing carbon taxes. In fact, the Democrats for two decades attempted to impose carbon taxes and under both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama suffered huge, unprecedented losses in Congress trying to do so. So finally, we've come on the view that providing incentives for consumers to buy electric vehicles, to improve their home heating, to reduce emissions in their lives, and then particularly for businesses to invest in breakthrough technologies is probably a better politics than imposing new taxes on populations. And I think you saw a little bit of that in the Uxbridge by-election where unexpectedly the Tory candidate won primarily because of the ULES tax. And I just want the Labour Party, which is has a brilliant new program of clean energy incentives, to be aware that average voters don't want climate change protected on the backs of working class families.
2: And Paul, the whole issue about net zero policies, particularly after Uxbridge, has become very high on the political agenda. It's become quite a wedge issue. And I think it will continue to be as we head towards the next general election. The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, has just... Pledge to roll back on some of the UK's environmental pledges. And also, there is this narrative about the fact that what Rishi Sunak is saying is that there's a cultural war on the motorist, which he is going to stop. And this goes beyond taxes, it goes to speed limits, it goes to low traffic. Neighborhoods. What do you think about the, the politics of of that for for Rishi Sunak? Do you think there's some mileage to pardon a pun in that for him? <laughs> oh God!
0: <laughs> uh, no, I actually don't. I think that Sunak has completely misjudged the issue. The British people. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Britain. My my wife is English, and we have a home there. And the British people are as dedicated to to climate protection as any in the world. And I think he's badly misjudged the politics here. That being said, I think that labor has to be very smart about how they implement their clean energy transition investments. And what you've seen so far from Keir Starmer indicates that they are going to be very smart about this. They have committed to tens of billions of dollars of clean energy investments, but they've also been careful to do so in a way that is within a very constrained UK budget situation and will not exacerbate inflation. We have to recognize that for average consumers, inflation, both in the US and the UK, in the last few years has been very difficult. And we have to be sensitive to the concerns about prices of energy. In the long run, the labor program, the democratic program in the United States is going to reduce the costs of energy and of using things like automobiles and heating your home. For example, obviously electric vehicles will uh, obviate the need for very expensive use of petrol or, or gasoline in the U.S., so in the, in the medium to long run, we're going to really low con- lower consumer prices. But we have to pay attention to consumers in the near term so that we can be sure to expand the support for overall climate policies toward net zero. That's really what we're talking about.
3: I wanted to ask a bit about the sort of global, how this affects the global picture, because I know you've been involved in some of the global agreements around cl- climate change. And Britain has been a kind of major player to date in a lot of those agreements. Do you think that the British government rowing back a bit, it becoming more of an electoral dividing line in the UK, is going to affect how other countries see what we're doing and how they sort of approach their own policies? Or are we, sort of, am I overstating our importance as a country?
0: No, it's, thank you. It's, it's a great, crucial question. The truth of the matter is that, for example, China's annual emissions are now larger than every developed country in the world put together. The United States, all of Europe, all of Japan, Canada, Australia, all together, China is larger. We have got to figure out a way to help Developing countries like China reduce their emissions, or we're not going to get a handle on this question. I actually think that Boris Johnson and the other Tory prime ministers have really not been taken very seriously on an international level, particularly because of their execution of Brexit. And I think that Labor has an opportunity, Ed Miliband and his colleagues have an opportunity to reestablish. British leadership in international climate negotiations. And that is absolutely crucial because this is a global problem. And ultimately, I think we're probably headed towards some sort of trade regime that puts a price on imports from higher emitting countries. You see the European Union has already has a a carbon border adjustment mechanism that's going to kick in in about 2026. I've advocated a plan where the U.S. and the G7 together create an alliance for clean trade to prioritize clean trade and to tax higher emissions imports from China and other countries Ultimately, we've got to get our trade and finance systems attuned to global net zero. We haven't done that yet. And I think Britain and Labour can play a huge role in that.
2: And Paul, final question uh, to you. I mean, you, you're a policy advisor. You're also a former director of communications. This Biden's plan is called the inflation reduction act it is something which is about climate change why is it framed in economic terms is that a comms decision is that because it's more palatable to people if it sounds like it's to do with the economy rather than climate change
0: it's a really another great question and i think this is true in the uk too people want broad policies that recognize their economic circumstances and the strategic economic circumstances of their country as a whole. So one of the reasons that Biden has framed the clean energy transition economic terms is because it makes more sense to average people. When you tell them we're going to grow the economy, we're going to increase jobs and reduce long-term costs, they're more likely to support the program. But the other reason is more strategic for the whole economy, which is, Clean energy is the largest new sector in the world. It's going to be worth tens of trillions of dollars over the next few decades. The countries that take leadership roles in clean energy are going to lead the world's economy. The U.S. is making large investments. Under labor, Britain will make those large investments. The Tories did not have a forward-looking program to strategically use British innovation and technology know-how to lead the world on these technologies. And that's the strategic element, the vision that people are looking for from Labour. And I think that Keir Starmer is going to offer.
3: Listening to that with The Telegraph's environmental editor, Emma Gatton. Hello, Emma. Hello. Hello. And the Economist policy substack writer and former Treasury adviser to Rishi Sunak, Tim Loynick. Hello, Tim. Hello. So you were just listening to Paul's comments, uh, Emma. Did you agree with Paul's sort of uh, assessment that uh, Sunak has made a political mistake by trying to turn uh, environment into a dividing line in the way he has?
1: I think he's certainly made a political gamble, and I don't think we know yet which way it's it's going to go. And, and the gamble, I think, is he framed it in this way that said net zero is going to cost households a lot of money and we need to prioritise those costs over making these changes to, to how we live and how our homes work, etc. And the gamble is whether or not people really feel that that is the case, whether they really are worried about the kind of impact on their household bills as a result of net zero. It's not clear whether they do. I mean, if you look at kind of there is polling that s- suggests that when people look at the cost of living and what they think is impacting that, net zero doesn't really come up. And obviously, Paul was talking about ULES, and we, we can't really, I don't think, compare um, net zero to ULES, and ULES is not a net zero policy. Mm. Um, it's it's about it's about air pollution. They're not really comparable. And the thing about EULES that was very specific about EULES is that it was immediate. Mm. Um, people knew exactly how much it was going to cost and i think probably possibly a lot of people thought that they were going to be impacted that maybe yeah it
3: was and it was impacted. just about to come in at that moment just about to come after in after i mean literally within it was weeks the worst possible time within really. weeks
1: of the election and the same is not true about about most net zero policies and actually if you look at what rishi sunak has done there's there's really only two things that he changed that actually have um an immediate impact um one is the off uh, grid boiler ban that was due to come in that's new boilers in 2026 and the other is new energy efficiency standards for landlords. Uh, And so I don't know that most people are really worried about what impact net zero is going to have on on their kind of monthly bills.
3: Tim, you worked with uh, Sunak, you know him better than any of us, that's for sure. Do you think this is primarily a sort of attempt to create a political dividing line? Or is this something that he sort of genuinely believes and has been sort of genuinely frustrated by as chancellor to Boris Johnson when he was prime minister.
4: So in my experience of Rishi is he's someone of great integrity in the following sense, that he isn't led by polling numbers, he isn't led by focus groups, he is doing, he tries to do whenever possible what he believes in. And so yes, I think he's someone who by and large you should take at his word. If he says A, he means A. If he says B, he means B, and so on and so forth. There's very little point in becoming prime minister if you don't use that office to do the things that you believe in. And Mm -hmm. my experience of all politicians is that they believe that when they do the things they believe in, the British people will agree with them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they won't do beforehand. And if you think about it, that's often the case because Mm -hmm. it's very easy to get people riled up against any change. But when it happens, people learn to live with it or they realize it wasn't as bad as they thought. And a classic example of this actually is wind turbines. In advance, you'll get many people to sign a a petition against a wind turbine or against housing. And then six months later, people say, oh, the wind turbine. Yes, I'd forgotten it was there or "I, I didn't notice it. I didn't notice those housing. It didn't, in fact, kill my community. So I think politicians are often right to do what they think is right.
3: And why does he think it's right? What's the sort of underpinning oh. argument? I mean, I'm, I'm not—I was making you his spokesman, but but I think you know, what what do you think would be the sort of argument for doing what he's done?
4: Well, some of the things he's done were taken to be much bigger than they were. So, take the delay on electric cars. He's still stuck with eighty percent of cars. The previous plan and Europe's plan have to be electric vehicles in twenty thirty. So the only thing he's done is said that for five years, 20% of cars can be petrol rather than plug-in electric hybrids. That's a tiny change. It's probably a sensible change, actually, because we were the only people in the world doing that. For what it's worth, by 2030, I think pretty much every car will be an electric car unless it's a specialist vehicle for which there is no electric substitute. So I think part of it is he's just looked at the evidence and decided some of what was done by his predecessors was gesture politics. And I think if we think back to the people who preceded him as prime minister, I don't think any of us would want to rule out the possibility that Boris Johnson <laughs> had done something as a gesture rather than because he'd thought it through. He'd examined the, the proposal in detail and had a working plan.
2: But what was interesting about when Rishi Sunat made his uh, kind of announcement uh, in in Downing Street it was all quite dramatic, you know, calling everybody there. And you're right; when you actually look at the the detail, there's not that much in it. Quite a lot of it was tonal more than than anything. Mm. And the, from a tonality point of view, there was this big thing, you know, I'm ending the, the war on motorists. There was also the, the mythical, I'm saving you from the meat tax and the, the meat pump and the seven bins of hell. What, what was going on there, Tim? Well, I have no idea. I wasn't working down the street <laughs> at the time. It's I mean, him. you're it's asking your fault, I literally <laughs> don't know the answer but Where to. do you think from a policy, where, where do you think their minds, where do you think they were coming a policy
4: from? policy thing, I think the biggest contrast, as I say, I mean, let's put Liz Truss to one side because she wasn't Let's really just do there. that generally long enough to <laughs> make a difference but the, re- the real difference between Rishi and Boris is Rishi's attention to detail nobody has ever accused Boris of attention to detail <laughs> and Rishi everyone would accuse of that for better and for worse and I think a chunk of what he was saying is I, I am more serious than my predecessors if I promise you something it will happen now, of course, he does have a different view on, on buses and, and uh, bikes than Boris. Boris was keen on both of them. Rishi doesn't show any enthusiasm, for, apart from his famous peloton, uh, for cycling or for buses. So there are some differences of priorities between him and his predecessor, as you would expect.
2: But Emma, where do you think this sort of... Particularly the, the weird thing about the seven bins and that the I'm saving you for... Because as Tim said... Rishi Sunak he kind of prides himself on being quite a details man, you know. I'm 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 not going to just you know do this kind of wild rhetoric. Where do you think he was coming from, and and did you see any evidence of of the meat tax and the seven bins?
1: Uh, seven bins was real. I'm just gonna. you seven well, you're bins Seven <laughs> bins. I mean, it was never. Um, it, it was never a set in stone policy, and it was never. You know, every house has to have seven bins. But it was a real thing that they were proposing to. We, we all had. You know, everyone should split up their recycling, and it was something that the waste industry was was backing, and councils were seriously worried about it. And who was the... So this is a DEFRA policy.
2: Right.
1: It's already... There are some parts of the country... I just want to clear this up. Some parts of the country where you already have five or six bins, right? And it's a local council thing and it makes recycling easier. And and so having seven bins is not um, a great leap. Would every house have had to have seven bins? No. But it was a real policy.
3: But the um, meat tax wasn't. Meat
1: tax, really was made up. Meat tax really was a made up policy in the sense that the only... Nugget of truth of the meat tax was um, that the government had at some point committed to looking at expanding carbon taxes to agriculture, which um, by sort of definition becomes therefore a meat tax and and George Eustace um, when he was environment secretary under Boris Johnson was looking and, and quite keen on the idea of having carbon border taxes on agriculture, which means that you have to have carbon taxes on your own industry so. That's where a meat tax comes from. So all of these things had sort of nuggets and kernels. Were any of them set in stone government policy? No. And what was striking, I think, um, in the kind of days, weeks after, was that all of the ministers who were then talking about some of these policies all were saying the same thing, which was, we know people are worried about this, so therefore we have to be seen to be tackling it.
3: Perhaps as an economist, you can help us with Labour's policy at the moment. Um, this sort of £20 billion, £28 billion, I think it's actually £20 billion now. The figure keeps it's jumping around. Got trimmed around, down a bit. Uh, that, that they keep sort of saying that they're going to spend. What exactly are they going to spend it on? Because they keep talking, we keep hearing this amount of money, but it's not clear what the actual plan is.
4: So the main thing I think they will spend it on, and which will have to be spent whoever gets into power, is more pylons. Right. Because ultimately, if we're going to move from single source... Um, power stations, where there happen to be gas power stations, to particularly offshore wind, but even onshore wind, even solar, you will need more pylons. You'll need more pylons whoever wins the election, because Mm. if we're going to all drive electric cars, if we're going to use electric heating rather than gas, we're going to have a lot more electricity. And a lot more electricity means a lot more pylons, because the cost of pylons is dramatically lower than burying them underground. So the main thing that's going to happen, whoever wins the next election, if Britain is serious about net zero, we've got to stop burning gas. That means more pylons.
3: And why is it that the state has to, why do the taxpayers have to pay for them rather than energy companies? Is, is What's the sort of logic so of that?
4: The actual grid has always been a natural monopoly. Mm. You don't want competing pylons. Oh, which way shall I send it? <laughs> shall I send it down the M1 or the M6 pylon? I mean, that's just daft. So... Whether it's strictly owned by the private sector as a natural and regulated monopoly or whether it's owned by the state is a very second-order question. But mm-hmm. to some extent, the state has to plan it because people aren't going to go out and build those offshore wind turbines unless they're sure there's going to be a wire connecting them from the place the electricity is generated to the place it's going to be used. And the government is the obvious organisation to do that. And I think that's that's accepted across the political spectrum. I mean, that's why we have the so-called NSIP regime, National Significant Infrastructure. Mm-hmm to sit down and work out those things and to some extent say to people we're sorry we realise your community's in the way but you know what the nation so, needs to be heated
3: So the planning reforms that they're talking about do intersect quite a lot here because you will people don't like a big pylon outside their home any more than they like a wind turbine so, No, absolutely
4: um, and let's be honest nobody's going to put a pylon literally outside <laughs> your home or at least not very often I mean there are some people who live next to pylons now yes. uh, where I live in southwest London in Chessington there's a row of houses that's immediately opposite the pylon. Pylons, and I'm not sure which of them was there first. Mm. But people have certainly lived next to pylons for years, houses sell next to pylons and so on and so forth. It isn't mm. It isn't the end of the world.
2: And Tim, what do you make about Labour's overall sort of big green planets, like probably their most flagship sort of policy suite that they have announced so far? And I'm quite interested particularly in your view or on their ambition to create this great British energy company a publicly owned clean energy company well it is a little bit tony
4: ben (laughs) i mean tony ben always had the belief that the private sector is failing and we're clever so we can do better Although I think uh,
2: many people think the private sector has not done a great correct. job when you look at water oh, yes. and all that kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely.
4: But it doesn't necessarily follow that the government, which Sam and I have both worked <laughs> for, can do better. So I think there is a risk there for them. And I think they need to identify why the private sector has done badly. Because if it's the government and regulations, et cetera, then by and large you're better off fixing that so that every energy company performs better. But equally, I think they are right to say that some things like committing to cables, purchasing very long runs, literally, I mean, uh, electricity cables are a very specialist product. There aren't thousands of producers of them. You can't just clip them together like Lego. These are specialist providers. And, and going out into the market saying, you know what, Britain needs this numbers of thousands of kilometres of cable. We're going to go out as the government and stand behind that purchasing. That makes a lot of sense. You'll get a better deal. The companies who are producing those cables will take you more seriously. But we also need to be careful not to go too far. You look at the sort of Robin Hood energy companies that were founded by lots of councils. I think I'm right in saying that every single one of those made a loss and every single one has since gone bankrupt. The state isn't always good at doing things.
2: And to be fair, they have said that they're not going to renationalise the actual Mm. kind of... Utilities. It's just creating this new green kind of
4: entity. Yes, and they
3: haven't, as with many of their policies that we discussed, given a huge amount of detail about what exactly they do mean. And they're
4: very sensible to do that. If you read blunders of government, you'll find that most of those blunders come about because they were manifesto promises that didn't make sense. Mm. And I don't blame parties for that. The amount of people that parties get to employ to advise them on their manifesto is tiny. And even with all the goodwill from all the groups who try and help people write manifestos, many of whom have vested interests, the civil service is a large organisation for a reason, which is that stuff is complicated. So being too precise in a manifesto or pre-an election is just silly. What I think Labour is signalling very strongly is that green stuff is very high on their list of things they will do and to govern is to choose and they're saying when push comes to shove and something has to give it's not going to be net zero and that seems a useful thing for them to tell the British people ahead of an election.
3: Emma, I want to come to you on that point, do you get a sense from the conversations you're having that Labour are absolutely committed to that path to saying that the environment is one of our top priorities despite the difficult financial situation and everything else Um, or is there some nervousness that that, that maybe it was the wrong choice?
1: No, they they seem to be very sort of clearly committed to this. I mean, I was at Labour conference um, last week and, you know, all the talk is, is when they talk about industrial strategy, it's a green industrial strategy. I don't see any um, kind of deviation from that. They seem to be pretty laser focused on that. Where I think they're going to have, they have potentially other issues is when it comes to the to the consumer side of this, which does seem to be missing from the conversations they're having. So, you know, you can talk about um, getting the, the grid green, etc., and and the, the kind of economic benefits and all of that, but they haven't really addressed, I don't think, um, how they will persuade households for instance to switch to a heat pump which is going to be one of the the really big challenges in the next 10 15 years and that's quite absent from the conversations that they're having. And going to back
3: to sort of what Paul was saying, Biden's gone for sort of this massive incentives approach. We do have some incentives for these things uh here too. But do you think that's a path for labor given the sort of financial situation to go bigger on, you know, money off your electric car and and cheaper heat pumps and we'll fit them for you and all of that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know that we need at this point money off electric cars given the, the way that we're going. And I think, you know, the government's kind of scaled down those subsidies and I think that probably makes sense. But but the heat pumps, I mean, I don't necessarily, I don't, I don't know that there's another direction to go in. I mean, if you look at the National Infrastructure Commission Came out with a report today, and they are saying, you know, we need to give um, free heat pumps to a third of all homes on the kind of lower socioeconomic groups, and and they need we need to give seven thousand pounds of subsidies to every other household, and that that's massive, um, and it's certainly huge compared to what the government is doing. But what they've done is look at take up uh, right now and say, look, without something major we're just not going to get there so it's going to be a question of do we want to get there and and if we are going to do it then I think we do need some kind of investment and it's a big hurdle at the moment.
2: And speaking about homes as well Emma a lot's been made about home insulation and certainly Labour has attacked the Conservatives as a rolling back on home insulation just tell us where is Labour on that and how important is that uh, as part of the, the the offer in terms of net zero?
1: Yeah, I think Labour have have kind of promised to do a lot more on on the home insulation side. And it's really important on the road to net zero. I mean, you you, you can do it without, but it's going to cost you a lot more money, basically. And it's going to um, cost you a lot more money for the individual because your bills are going to be higher and it's going to cost a lot more money infrastructure-wise because you have to have more electricity if you're all switching to heat pumps. And it just costs a lot more to power them. So you have to have a bigger bigger grid. So that is really important. And again, it just goes back to this idea of you have to find a way of making it easy for people, but also making it sound somehow appealing in a way you have to get to a point where people are like oh I'll invest in the insulation in my home and that will put more value on my house Mm. or will make me feel more comfortable when I'm at home and somehow it's it's it seems like a good thing to do
4: One of the things we have to face in Britain is we have the oldest housing stock in the world. So we were as urbanised in 1850 as France and Germany were in 1950. And we have these rows upon rows of lovely Victorian and Edwardian terraces that people like, but they're quite hard to insulate And often councils make it even harder. So in Hackney, the council owned a council house that was a mid-terrace and they wanted to insulate it by going up into the roof and then adding insulation. This would have made the rear extension that could not be seen from the road nine inches taller. And Hackney Council was refused planning permission by Hackney Council (laughs) to better insulate a house owned by Hackney Council and let out to someone who was poor. And really, we do need to say that that is just unacceptable. Putting the roof line up by nine inches to properly insulate a loft conversion is a thoroughly good thing to do, especially when it can't be seen from the road. So if Labour is really serious about cracking down on those sorts of regulations, then I think we can go quite a long way, really at no cost.
3: Tim, I wanted to get your thoughts on this sort of point about consumer incentives and how you get take up of things like heat pumps, which are not at the moment popular. Uh, if you were sort of pitching to the Treasury in a, in, a, in a spending review, what would you be sort of aiming for?
4: So, first of all, giving everyone £7,000 is just odd. Frankly, the idea that any of us in this room should be given £7,000 is very odd, not least because we would be paying for it, because mm. all government money has to come from taxes. So it is clear that people who are too poor to buy a heat pump will have to be supported, but we need to avoid cliff edges where one person gets 7,000 quid and the next person doesn't. In general, since we believe these things are cheaper to run in the long term, it would be better for a state-owned company to pay for them, install them, and then charge people over the next 50 years. So in the way we built council houses, the original council houses didn't lose money. The government paid it back over 50 years. So I'm not wildly keen on giving out cash grants to people like that. The other thing we need to look at is collective provision. So every single person putting in their own heat pump is a pretty nutty idea, particularly in areas of flats and terrace housing. So there are various companies now that dig up the road and put in a ground source heat pump, and then you connect to it. And once they've put in the ground source heat pump, it's usually then cheaper to connect it than to run a gas boiler. And those sorts of collective solutions, which in general would appeal to a Labour party, I think will be a big part of the mix.
3: And how do you get that to happen? What's the sort of key to to So one of the keys doing it is
4: just to give the companies who fit those things the right to dig up the road, <laughs> because at the moment it's very hard for them to dig up the road and install it. Once they can do that, then I think particularly as of council housing, moving council tenants away from gas to this system quite quickly would make the economics of this very good for the installer. And given that it is cheaper than running a gas boiler, but ultimately at some point the government will have to turn off the gas. And as people move to heat pumps, running the gas pipe down my road, which has leaked for 20 years, they keep digging up the road to try and find the gas leak. They still haven't found it after 20 years. At some point, the gas board's going to come along and say, you know what? There's only five of you still using gas. We're not going to supply you. We're going to turn off the gas. And if you want to keep your gas boiler, you're going to have to install a calor gas tank. And at that point, believe me, no one's going to do that because mm-hmm. calor gas and oil are expensive.
2: And Emma, just to pick up on on that, how do you sell that to the public as well because that is when you move from everybody saying you know I'm completely on board with climate change that sounds really good to suddenly hang on what that's like quite a lot of disruption to to my house and it's probably going to cost me quite a lot of money how does any party navigate that successfully
1: I don't know (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I generally I mean I I really don't know how you, um, you, you you do need some kind of campaign to inspire people that they need to be doing their bit because there is no way round that it's going to be disruption in people's homes it's going to be disruption in the street however you do it whether it's you know district heating systems individual heat pumps it's going to it's going to be disruptive and it's potentially going to be expensive and messy and messy and if everyone is doing it then you you probably feel a bit more inclined to be part of something that everyone is doing. And just on in terms of what Tim said, I mean, that's going to be the big danger, right, with the boiler thing, which is that you will have a sort of U-layers thing if we get to the point where we are putting um, potentially more carbon taxes on gas, for instance, or making it more expensive to use gas. And then you'll have uh, a section of, of the population that can't afford to switch, um, but are left using very expensive gas. And that's that's where the danger comes in. But it's it's a while
4: off. Tim. So one thing that will help people transform is actual global warming. Air conditioning is becoming rather desirable. And heat pumps are also air conditioning units, whether you have them as radiators or whether you have them as moving air. I mean, imagine going into your house in summer and you touch the radiator. It's just nice and cool. And it's knocking four or five degrees off the... Oh, I mean, I'd the, love that. You'd I'd love that, right? I'd be
2: sticking myself to it. As a menopausal <laughs> woman, I'd just be like <laughs> living stuck to the cold radiator thing. Well, I promise you, you don't have to be a menopausal woman to want it to be
4: cool <laughs> in the summer. And I think there'll be lots of people who say, hang on a moment, they visit their friend's house, their friend's got a heat pump, and it's lovely and cool. And they say, why is it so cool? And they say, well, we've turned the radiators to minus. And they go, oh, wow, how does that work? And you know, go, well, we've got a heat pump, it, it just does it. And people go, oh, maybe I'll look in to get one of those. And yeah, it cost me a couple of thousand quid, but you know what? I'm going to sleep well at night all through the summer. So actually, I think more people are going to go for this more easily, notwithstanding some upfront costs and notwithstanding some disruption.
1: I mean, I do think it is absolutely going to be a word of mouth thing. It's going to be like, you know, someone down the street who's had this and they have someone that they trust. And then just to go back on the the energy efficiency point, we, if we um, manage to do those things first, it's going to make that much easier because then you do, okay, you do a little bit of your insulation the next time you renovate your kitchen. And therefore, when you think about having a heat pump installed in, in 10 years' time, maybe it's much easier to do that. And you don't have to do everything
2: all at mm. once. I'm just imagining a future Labour government and Ed Miliband running a sort of like campaign for heat pumps, mm. like a sort of tell Sid sort mm. of. <laughs> Of campaign, but I don't know if that would, I don't know if that would necessarily work. If the government says, "Oh, no, heat pumps are really, really good," I'm not good. sure how
3: many of our listeners are old enough to get the right. Uh, they will, trust <laughs> me, they will.
4: <laughs> but also Ed Miliband, uh, who has many merits, he's not the sort of person who we trust because we haven't been to his house. Mm. It's when you go to someone's house or when you go in someone's electric car and they say, "Oh, it's blissful. I never have to go to a petrol station,"
3: mm. and
4: those just little things that make you realise, "Oh, yeah, you know, well, going to a petrol station is a nuisance."
3: On electric vehicles, there is one more question I wanted to ask you, which is Brexit, because we have to mention Brexit at least every episode. Um, the, uh, the, the, there is a sort of negotiation going on at the moment between the EU and the UK on tariffs for electric vehicles. And if those fail, they're going to get much more expensive next year. Do you think there is any chance of that happening?
4: So they don't necessarily become more expensive here next year because Britain wouldn't have to levy the same tariff on Europe so that they levy on Our cars would become more expensive our there. Our cars would be more expensive there. Or specifically, cars that are produced half here and half there won't count as European for tariff purposes. Right. So it is possible that those negotiations could be very bad news for Nissan in Sunderland and the people who work there. And the same is true for the people who work in the mini car plant in Oxford, which has not yet started producing electric cars mm. and so on. But I don't uh, unless the British government decided to try and, you know, they've done it to us so we'll do they've shot themselves in the mm. foot, so we'll shoot ourselves in the
3: foot as well. At no point during the Brexit process has the government done anything like that. So <laughs>
4: Well, I'd be su- well, no, actually, on, on import duties, it really hasn't, right? We haven't put up all sorts of tests and tariffs on food mm. coming in on Calais to Dover, not least because we mm. can't work out how to do it in an effective manner. So I'd be very surprised if the British government decided to put up the price of electric cars by means so of it might now.
3: affect companies w- with plants here, but yes. it's probably not going to affect consumers here. That's my That's expectation. To get that um, cleared up. Uh, and, I, and one final question. When Paul was sort of saying that in the medium to long term, this is going to save consumers money, I saw you sort of slightly grimacing and, and shaking your head. Do you, you don't think that's true?
4: So I think it depends where you are. So the mm. place that's adopting solar at the moment most spectacularly is Texas. texas has some of the highest solar potential in the world particularly in west texas so there's no doubt that in texas it will be cheaper to run an electric car cheaper to heat your house with electricity than any other method they're down under two cents a kilowatt hour now all inclusive including buying the solar panel for your house i mean imagine electricity at a penny a kilowatt hour right i mean it's just it's a quarter of a penny a mile to drive your car then so for texas he is absolutely spot on If we take the opposite extreme, which is Germany, I think they've got a real problem. They don't have great wind. They don't have great solar. I can't see anything beating burning gas in cost terms for Germany. So I think it really depends on where you are. Britain is somewhere in between. But I certainly wouldn't want to stand here and say, this will be cheaper long term. Mm. But I'm not willing to go the other way and say it'll be dearer long-term. I think Britain is on the cusp.
3: Mm. We have wind, but less
4: We have wind. Wind is less reliable than solar. Mm. And solar in Texas is perfectly aligned with peak energy demand because their peak energy demand is for aircon. When do you need most aircon? When it's sunny. Mm. When do we need most power? When it's cold. Mm. Is it windier when it's cold? No, it's no windier in February than it is in July. Mm. And that's why I think for us it's not a slam-dunk dead cert. Whereas for Texas, this is yet another time where Texas has won the lottery
3: of life. So we're all moving to Houston. Do you, um... <laughs> well, speak for yourself there, Sam.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think for me, I think it's a bit hot for me, to be absolutely <laughs> honest. And then I suppose final point to, to you, just to take it a, a step back. How much of an issue do you think climate change and net zero is going to play in the next year in the run-up to the next general election? And how much of a wedge issue do you think it really will be?
1: I think it depends, basically, on which direction the the Tories decide to take it. It really sort of depends whether the Tories want to push further on this idea that uh, households are going to be bearing the brunt of net zero.
2: And how much they want to push that as a fear factor.
1: Exactly. And, and whether they can really convince people that that is the case. And I'm not really sure that that is what people are concerned about. I don't think that that's necessarily what they want to hear from the Conservatives. I think that they want to hear about certainty. And I think what Rishi Sunak did with his speech on Net Zero was undermine certainty because he's gone back yet again on something that had been a sort of clear line that we were going down.
2: Do you think Labour is passing the power test when it comes to its net zero policy? Emma, I'll start with you.
1: Yes. I think that they've got a clear agenda. I think that they've got some good sound bites. They are missing quite a lot of detail, but it may be that that's the best position for them to be in right now.
2: Tim. Yes,
4: I think unambiguously. It reminds me of when I first met Sam in about 2008 and he was working with Michael Gove on Michael's plans for schools. And they had enough details then to start something that did work in the sense that it could be implemented and was implemented and we can judge its success afterwards. And I think Labour's in a similar position. It's pretty radical stuff, but it's not bonkers. I mean, they're not promising a monorail to every city or, you know, life in Mars or anything that's clearly infeasible. This is deliverable. It will be hard. It will require tough choices at points from them once they're in power. But yes, they, they've done enough to, to make it clear to the British people this is important to them in a way that is, is plausible.
2: Well, Tim, Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as ever, a really interesting set of conversations. I mean, my big takeaway is that when you dig into this, there are actually practical details which become a lot more interesting. Who knew that home insulation, be so interesting? <laughs> who knew that heat pumps could be so interesting? We didn't discuss meat pumps. That's a whole different no, sort no. of thing, but um, heat pumps. And I think quite a lot of what um, both um, Emma and Tim were saying is that if there is a change of, of administration, whoever takes over is really going to have to get into the guts of all of this. And it could mean some quite big, interesting moments in terms of town planning and urban design and all of this kind of of stuff that it is going to be have to be a bit more interventionist but actually there is a case to be made for that.
3: Yeah I thought it was quite interesting that both our guests didn't really think this was going to be a huge election issue actually like despite the fact the parties will try and make it one that really for most people this is still quite an abstract issue that isn't affecting their lives yet, although, you know, a growing awareness that it will do, unlike ULES, which was sort of an immediate and direct thing. But what they are saying is that, you know, if Labour win, they're going to have this really sort of meaty challenge about how they achieve these very ambitious goals that they're setting out. And that will, as you say, require taking on the planning system, which they say they're going to do, investing a lot of money. And I'm not convinced that even 20 billion, which sounds like a very big sum, is going to be enough investment to do everything that Labour are promising and sell some quite tricky stuff to, to the public as it gets closer and as the consequences become more real. And it feels like they're kind of, at least at the moment, rhetorically willing to do that. But of course... Once you're actually in government, once you're being assailed by a thousand different problems, it might become less of a priority or less of a, an area for focus, I guess, would be the worry.
2: I also thought it was interesting that clearly you can see that the Labour Party has been speaking to the Americans. The fact that we heard from Paul that they made a conscious decision even though their Inflation Reduction Act is very much about climate change. They're very much framing it in terms of an economic sell to the public and Labour's very much doing that with their new green, you know, it's all about the green economy. They're not not going too much into sort of climate change. So I think they're both trying, both sort of the Democrats and Labour here in the UK Mm. are sort of trying to be big on this. Well, Labour's trying to be big on this and be radical but not scare the horses too much. Yeah, and
3: try and make it as much as possible well about jobs and bills and bills coming down and there's a little bit of disingenuousness in doing that not because it, it it's it's completely untrue there will be green jobs and and it might over the long term bring bills down but that it's not talking about the costs it's very much focusing on the benefits and not the costs which i guess is inevitable i thought tim made a really interesting point around you know, again, as, as every week, you can sort of criticise Labour for not putting out more details. They have said a bit more about this issue than lots of other issues. That's not really the job of an opposition. You need civil servants to do the kind of detailed work. What you're trying to do with the, with your policy agenda is signal your priorities. And Labour have made it very clear this is a priority for them. Um, the question for me is, does that stick? Thanks for listening to the Power Test. Do get in touch. Uh, tweet us at the Power Test or email pod at thepowertest.co.uk.
2: We'll be back next week with another big topic. Do join us then.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?